Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Dr Bridget Scott and the focus of today's podcast is the role of predictive biomarkers in guiding the treatment of patients with endometrial cancer. This podcast has been sponsored by GSK. Joining me today are two experts in the field, Professor Keta LaRusso and Professor Nicole Consin, who are going to offer their perspectives on the most important research and the latest findings on predictive biomarkers in patients with endometrial cancer and the potential of these biomarkers for guiding treatment decisions. Keta LaRusso is Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at Catholic University of Rome and is responsible for clinical research development at Fondazione Policlinico Universitario Gemelli IRCC. She is an active member of the multi-centre Italian trial in ovarian cancer group, which is the largest research group in the field of gynaecologic oncology in Italy. Professor LaRusso is a member of the European Network of Gynaecological Oncological Trialed Groups, where she leads the Gynaecological Cancer Academy. She is a member of the Gynaecologic Cancer Intergroup, where she is part chair of the Endometrial Cancer Committee and Operation Committee, and she is also a member of the ESGO Council. Professor LaRusso is actively involved in preclinical and clinical research on gynaecological malignancies, and her mission is to promote education and clinical research and ameliorate treatment of patients with gynaecological cancer. Nicole Consin is Professor of Experimental Gynaecology at the Medical University of Innsbruck and Senior Consultant in Gynaecological Oncology at Evang Kliniken Essen Mitter. Professor Consin is President of ESGO, Chair of the Early Drug Development Network of ENGOT, an Education Faculty Member of ESMO for Gynaecological Cancer, a member of FIGO Women's Cancer Committee for Endometrial Cancer, and a board member of AGO Germany and AGO Austria. Professor Consin's research focuses on gynaecological oncology. She has led multiple translational and clinical research projects worldwide and has provided her expertise in over 75 international clinical trials in gynaecological oncology, in several of which she served as principal and global coordinating investigator. Professor Consin has received multiple grants and awards and has over 120 publications in the field of gynaecological oncology. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of GSK or EMJ. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Keta Lorusso and Professor Nicole Consin. Thank you so much for your kind invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll get on to our first question. Endometrial cancer is the most common gynecological malignancy in developed countries and often presents at an early stage. What are the main challenges in the diagnosis, disease staging, risk stratification and treatment of patients with endometrial cancer? Keta, would you like to take that one? Oh, thank you so much. Um, you know, for several years, so we consider endometrial cancer a very good prognostic tumors in most part of cases, in more than 80% of cases, we are able to diagnose the disease when it's still uterine confined, so stage one, stage two, early disease. And this gave us the impression that this tumor is easy to manage as a good prognosis and whatever. 
The problem is now is that endometrial cancer is the only gynecological malignancies with increasing in incidence and mortalities. Because for several years, we consider endometrial cancer as a single disease and we did not invest so much in clinical research. In the last years, we, we did great step forward in the surgical treatment, because the, when the tumor is uterine confined, but also when lymph nodes are involved, the surgery is the mainstay of treatment. Actually, we perform a mini-invasive surgery for this patient and we substitute the lymphadenectomy with the procedure, the less invasive procedure of sentinel lymph nodes. But also in the medical treatment in the last year, we performed great step forward, simply recognized that endometrial cancer is not a single disease, but at least four different tumors. Yes, absolutely, Keta. Uh, so important things you mentioned, uh, the the big changes we've seen and the advancements actually for our patients. I think the major advancements is, as you said, uh, the the uh, less radical surgical approach in the early stage disease, the sentinel lymph node, and the minimal invasive approach which is really a huge benefit for our patients. And of course, uh, the molecular classification, the four subtypes, uh, this has completely changed the view uh, on this disease. It is a molecular disease and we can classify our patients into four molecular subgroups, which are highly prognostic. It sounds like the complexity of endometrial cancer is far better recognised with these different subgroups, but it also sounds like the surgical advances, the medical advances are in parallel improving at the same time as in increased understanding. Is, is that changing the picture of the, of the disease quite considerably, do you think? Absolutely. I, I think this is the logical consequence. So uh, if we talk about molecular markers, the more we learn about the nature of this disease, about the different subtypes, the next step, and this is where we are uh, uh, currently on the way, is how does this influence uh, the treatment of the patients? And this is more and more uh, uh, practice in the clinic and, of course, topic of uh, research. A lot of clinical trials going on on the predictive value of these biomarkers, on the uh, consequences for treatment decision-making for our patients. And in specific situations, we already have approvals in place. Uh, I think we'll, we'll certainly address these situations in this podcast. So has the, the realization about the different subgroups been a bit of a game changer in the, in the, in this um, research area? Oh, sure. The four groups uh, uh, completely change our approach to the treatment of endometrial cancer. We have it in our guidelines. Actually, the molecular classification is strongly suggest and should be implemented in combination with the clinical classification 
to better stratify our patient and to better define how to treat this patient from adjuvant to the advanced setting. And in particular, as Nicole mentioned, we have four subgroups, the polymute, which represent 7 to 8% of endometrial cancer, and they have a very good prognosis. On the opposite, the P53 mute patient, which represent about 15 to 25% of endometrial cancer patients, the worst in terms of prognosis, they are responsible for more than 50% of cancer-related death in endometrial cancer. Then we have the microsatellite instability tumor, uh, which are characterized by, uh, of course, instability, genomic instability, and this tumor seems to respond very well to immunotherapy. And then we have the last group, which is, I think, uh, Nicole probably will agree with me, it's a miscellanea of tumors. Uh, probably in the coming years, uh, we will have more granularity in better define who are the non-specific molecular profile patient, uh, and we will know much better how to treat this group. Fully agree with you, Keta. And actually, this non-specific molecular profile group is also the biggest group among the four molecular subtype. It uh, comes to 35 uh, to 45% of all endometrial carcinoma cases. So it is a very important group, actually. Uh, and as you said, a very heterogeneous group. And it seems that in the future, probably the estrogen receptor uh, will play a major role in, in this group and will further subdivide this group in, in subgroups. Also, grading is particularly important in this non-specific molecular profile group. Uh, very important what Keta mentioned, the, the one important aspect of the molecular markers is their prognostic value. So they really help us to better stratify our patients in prognostic risk groups. So it's uh, to better estimate the prognosis of the patient. And, uh, and the second important point is the predictive value uh, of these molecular subgroups. And here um, we have to differentiate the adjuvant treatment situation from the metastatic uh, advanced stage disease. And uh, for both of these two situations, the molecular subtypes have already entered international guidelines like the esco estro esp guidelines and also the ESMO uh, guidelines. They respect the molecular markers for prognostic risk group stratification and also for predictive uh, decision-making and, and uh, on treatment uh, options. So clearly the, the, the um, knowledge of the subgroups is helping understand prognosis and helping with treatment planning. It sounds, from what you've both said, it sounds like we're just at the surface with these subgroups. So we've got the, we've got the four main subgroups at the moment, but it sounds like particularly the no specific molecular profile could end up being made up of many, many other subgroups within that group of patients. Is 
do you just see this just do you see this as we're just at the beginning of this story the beginning of understanding these groups yes absolutely this is this is just the beginning uh it will become even uh more uh complex uh or better say it in a positive way i think it will be further individualized and more specific for the individual patient in the future by even within the subgroups learning more about uh, prognostic factors and predictive factors. And this does not only uh, apply to the NSMP group, uh, there is already evidence uh, that also the other groups, for example, the mismatch repair deficient groups, there are patients um, with, with somatic mutations, there are patients with uh, uh, MLH1 methylation. So uh, there are different mechanisms that the tumor becomes mismatch repair deficient and the kind of mechanism involved um, is obviously also influencing uh, response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So there will be more granularity probably uh, not only in the NSMP group but also in the other groups. That's fascinating stuff. Okay, on to the next question. What is the current opinion on liquid biopsies, specifically analysis of circulating tumor DNA or circulating tumor cells as a biomarker for predicting prognosis, treatment response, disease progression, and tumor recurrence in patients with endometrial cancer? Keta, do you want to take that one? Oh, yes. This is a very interesting field of the clinical research. In this moment, this is only clinical research. We have no data to validate the routine use of liquid biopsy in, uh, in endometrial cancer, but it seems absolutely promising for all the reasons on your state. Uh, in other tumor, we know that the level of tumor circulating DNA after surgery is, or after treatment in general is predictive of prognosis, but we can also monitoring the treatment response by evaluating tumor circulating DNA. It seems that it can anticipate by several months before instrument, radiologic instruments, the disease progression and the recurrence. So it's, it's a very interesting field of clinical research. In the coming years, we will have a lot of data on that because all the ongoing clinical trial also consider the liquid biopsy and how to correlate with prognosis and response to treatment. So I think in the coming years, we will have a lot of data on that. And probably this will be another, another aspect that will change the clinical practice. Absolutely. And it's, it's such an interesting uh, emerging methodology because it's not invasive. So I think this makes it really very attractive. Imagine that we uh, might be able in the future to just with a blood sample uh, to estimate tumor burden, uh, uh, prognosis, monitor treatment response, early detection of relapse just by a blood sample. Um, this is, of course, very attractive methodology. 
so at the moment it's sort of a bit of a sort of research stage at the moment but has the potential to be incredibly interesting in the clinical scenario and also as you say Nicole a a more patient uh, almost patient friendly kind of way to um to to look at the tumor progression and to look at monitoring tumor response and that sort of thing absolutely okay um Metabolic abnormalities have been studied in various cancer types. Could identification of the expression profiles of metabolism-related genes in patients with endometrial cancer help guide outcome prediction and therapy selection in clinical practice? Nicole? Well, uh, metabolism-related genes, is, it's also it's an interesting topic. Um, it is also... Uh, at the moment, there are only preliminary data. And uh, if I relate this to circulating tumor DNA or, the, or circulating tumor cells data, this is uh, certainly in early development and early um, preliminary data that we have on this. But uh, uh, nevertheless, it's a very interesting uh, topic. There are studies in, for example, the TCGA data set where uh, metabolism-related gene signatures have been analyzed and have been found to be prognostic uh, in endometrial cancer patients. And also, they seem to have different immunological backgrounds, like some signatures have more infiltrating immune cells and uh, thus, there are very preliminary data that this might also such metabolism-related gene signature um, be predictive for response to immune therapy, which is very interesting uh, findings. But as said, it's it's preliminary data in in. Uh, in some uh, patient cohorts, but the prospective data are missing. But it's an interesting emerging field of research in endometrial cancer. So research at a very, very early stage by the sound of it, but with great potential for, um, as you said, uh, predicting response to immunotherapy, for example. Certainly of interest, yes. Yeah. And immune therapy, you know, is, is so important now in endometrial uh, cancer with all the new data that emerged this year. I mean, endometrial cancer, it, it is such a rapidly progressing field with uh, uh, major results of clinical trials that are currently being presented and more are expected uh, this year. It's really exciting times and the field is changing so rapidly and particularly in terms of immune therapy, we've learned so much this year. So I I hope we will uh, talk about these data in in the podcast, uh, what we've learned at ASCO this year. (laughs) Yes, it's yeah. It's an unprecedented moment for the clinical research and clinical practice in endometrial cancer treatment. We never imagined a few years ago, even a few years ago, 
to live the moment we are living now with immunotherapy for sure, which is the new standard of care in, in second line in MSI high patient, but also in first line in combination with chemotherapy. In, in the last months, we have uh, the, the publication of uh, two randomized trial evaluating uh, immunotherapy in combination with platinum paclitaxel in the first line advanced setting. The trial used uh, respectively pembrolizumab and ostarlimab, and they reached the same conclusion. The benefit is huge in the DMMR population, as expected. We, we are talking about as a ratio of 0 0.28, 0 0.3 for the progression, but there is a benefit also, even though smaller, in the PMMR population. And the Ruby data with the Starlimab has also overall survival as a co-primary endpoint. And even though the data are not yet mature, only 33% of the population, but still we see a clear signals. The two curves separate very well, and this suggests that potentially we will have also overall survival benefit in this population. It's, it's unprecedented. Never, never, we never imagined to live this moment for our patients. Uh, beautifully said, Keta. <laughs> this is uh, these are hazard ratios. We haven't seen such hazard ratios in endometrial carcinoma patients, and particularly we we talk here about uh, advanced stage disease, and we talk here about uh, recurrent uh, endometrial cancer patient first line. Uh, systemic uh, treatment, chemo and IO. And uh, as you said, for me, the most convincing data also uh, premature uh, with 33% maturity, the Ruby overall survival data. I mean, we talk about overall survival benefit in mismatch repair deficient patients, advanced stage and relapsed. So, so this is really amazing data and a huge uh, benefit for our patients. Very exciting times. Clearly a rapidly moving field and with fantastic results coming out, it's incredibly positive for the, for the, for the patients and the clinicians looking after them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's really... It's wonderful to see this data and uh, to be able uh, to offer it to our patients. The approvals of these trials are not yet in place, but uh, luckily in several countries we can have already the chance to access uh, via this or other route and provide these drugs to our patients. Wonderful, wonderful. So um, in, the, in the same sort of theme of amazing clinical search, what about research into identifying biomarkers to predict response to novel therapies? Keta, have you got some uh, wise words but, on yeah. that? Oh, sure. But basically, all the subgroup that Nicole mentioned now as a, a predictive biomarker of response, polymutation, MSI high, and, but also tumor mutational burden are predictive biomarker of response to immunotherapy. Hormone receptor positivity is a predictive biomarker of response to 
hormonal treatment and probably in the future, exactly as uh, is happening uh, in uh, breast cancer, we will treat this patient with hormonal treatment plus CDK46 inhibitor. We have trial ongoing in this setting. P53 mute may represent a predictive biomarker. When it is mute, it's a predictive biomarker of response to chemo and potentially in the future also to PARP inhibitor. When it is wild type, it's a predictive biomarker of response to exporting inhibitor, Selinexor. We saw very interesting data in P53 wild type patient using Selinexor in the maintenance setting. And, and in addition, we have R2 overexpression, which is a predictive biomarker of response to R2 targeting drug. Uh, during ASCO, we saw incredible response with the trastuzumab derustecan in R2 positive patient with 87%, 87% response rate to trastuzumab derustecan in a population of R2 plus 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 positive endometrial cancer patient who have received a median of two prior line of therapy. These are numbers that usually we see in first line with the three or four drugs. So it's impressive. The moment we are living is impressive and we have a lot, particularly in endometrial cancer, a lot of predictive biomarkers that will help as in guiding treatment of our patient. And much more to learn, Keta, right? Yeah, uh, to study. Even <laughs> more <laughs> to study. <laughs> and and, and uh, even more uh, trials to do. Um, for example, what we also have seen, and I mean, the, the level of evidence for all this Uh, differs, of course. There are uh, not not all data we talk about is prospective, uh, randomized phase three data. A lot of data are coming now from early phase trial or also from post hoc analysis of trials, where then after the trial was performed, molecular um, uh, subtypes are analyzed and then correlated to clinical findings. But also these are extremely valuable and important analysis to do in order to learn more. For example, for the P53 abnormal subgroup, there are also now molecular marker analysis uh, in a phase uh, two trial that showed that the P53 abnormality is a predictive factor for responsiveness to bevacizumab, to anti-angiogenetic treatment. So this might also be an interesting option um, in the P53 abnormal, uh, which, which uh, uh, might, uh, for example, also play a role in the very effective combinational treatment that we've seen with lenvatinib and pembrolizumab in the mismatch repair proficient uh, patients, as lenvatinib is also anti-angiogenetic drug. So a, a lot uh, more to learn and also more uh, interesting drugs to come, for example, in the P53 vial type MDMT and MDM2 inhibiting drugs uh, that 
increase uh, the level of wild type P53. It's a negative regulator of wild type P53 in the cells. So a lot more to come, a lot more to learn, uh, hopefully uh, a lot more uh, more individualized treatment options for our patients in the future. So the more we learn from uh, clinical trials, the postdoc anal- analysis you're talking about, um, co- correlating the molecular subtypes with the, um, the clinical findings in the trial, look, looking at um, treatment response um, progression. We're learning so much by doing this, aren't we, in these clinical trials? And if more of these kind of ad hoc analyses can be conducted, we're just going to keep on learning. Exactly. And for example, we also very much look forward. I heard now that the the data uh, of the Ruby trial, the NICE trial that uh, Keta has already mentioned, the combination of chemotherapy uh, with uh, dostalimab in the first line uh, treatment of advanced and recurrent endometrial cancer patients. Uh, We will uh, learn about the sub group analysis in the molecular subtypes uh, I heard by the end of this year. So uh, we eagerly, uh, you know, await all these molecular subgroup data in order to learn more about who are the patients uh, that benefit most. And and, uh, this is really important uh, to learn to identify the patients that benefit most, um, so a lot, a lot more work to do and to learn for us. Which key clinical studies have been conducted in the adjuvant setting to evaluate the role of predicted biomarkers in guiding the treatment of patients with endometrial cancer? Nicole. Actually, in the adjuvant setting, the uh, most important clinical trials are currently ongoing. So we we really miss uh, uh, prospective randomized phase three data in the adjuvant setting until now. The results are not there. We don't have level one evidence on this at the moment, but the trials are ongoing. Um, I would like to mention the RAINBOW trial, which is a a beautiful uh, academic trial um, run by the Transportec uh, group um, that evaluates uh, adjuvant treatment in actually all comers of completely resected endometrial carcinoma patients their upfront um, characterization of all four molecular subgroups is done and then adjuvant treatment for each of these molecular subtypes um, is is provided in a separate randomized uh, trial where new treatment, targeted treatment approaches or treatment approaches that uh, seem very rational from a scientific point of view are compared with standard of care in these molecular subtypes. So um, this is really very, very interesting study for the P53. For example, abnormal PARP inhibitors are added for the mismatch repair deficient immune therapy in the adjuvant setting. 
uh, in the NSMP hormonal treatment and uh, in the pole mute um, no adjuvant treatment. Um, this will, trial will give us very, very important uh, information. Um, I just would like to mention that current international guidelines already do give uh, adjuvant treatment recommendations based on molecular classification. Also, the level one evidence is currently missing. And uh, I would like to point out two important clinical situations where molecular subtype has already an influence in the guidelines on a treatment decision making in the adjuvant setting. And this is pole E mute cases in early stage disease, stage one and stage two. Uh, here, we do not recommend to give adjuvant uh, treatment in these cases because prognosis is excellent. So pole E mute, stage one, stage two, uh, is the one situation. And the other situation is P53 abnormal um uh stage uh, early stage uh, uh disease uh here if there is a myometrial invasion and this has become now very very uh, simple because this is uh, independent of histological subtype so no matter if this is an endometroid p53 abnormal a clear cell endometrial uh, a clear cell p53 abnormal or a serous a histological subtype. Whenever you have a P53 abnormality, these patients are considered high risk and should be treated like high risk patients in the adjuvant setting. So these are the two clinical situations where we give recommendations in the adjuvant setting. Also, the level one's evidence data are, are lacking. Keta, uh, do you have another important trial in mind in the adjuvant setting that we... Uh, we... Yes, I was thinking, Nicole, to what we will see at ESMO. Uh, yes. It would be an amazing ESMO for gynecological cancer. I think we will have six randomized uh, phase three trial in all gynecological malignancies, not only endometrial cancer, but in particular for the endometrial cancer in the adjuvant setting, we will have the results of Keynote E11, which is the trial evaluating pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting of high-risk endometrial cancer patients. And if the trial is positive, potentially, this is another practice-changing trial. We will impact our clinical practice. Again, also in the adjuvant setting, a really interesting moment. Probably what will be um, tricky in the future, Nicole, is the work a little bit more on the sequencing, because if we move uh, immune therapy in the adjuvant setting, uh, we will have the huge issue of how to treat uh, immune pretreated patients, how to move forward. But uh, as you mentioned, endometrial cancer has several predictive biomarkers. We will address other biomarkers. I'm thinking about uh, anti-TROP2, anti-R2. So, uh, I, I think we will move uh, forward with other biomarkers and we will better explore the sequencing in the future. Exactly. This, this will be the challenge. 
now that we move forward in in the adjuvant setting and in the first line setting the the best uh, uh, drugs we have of course the question is then what what comes thereafter but as you say i'm also optimistic that we will have the the new opportunities uh, in in these patients based on the molecular profile the new drugs the new options the new individualized treatments uh, that will follow it's a it's a learning process and the best what we have should be given up front sure sure so on to our final question what does the future of the management of patients with endometrial cancer look like and which advancements in the research and use of biomarkers would you like to see keta oh i think the future for endometrial cancer patient in this moment is very bright uh, all the data that Nicole uh, and me reviewed tonight uh, uh, basically um, show a very uh, lucky situation in which we will have more and more predictive biomarker and more and more personalized treatment and a very effective drug. So effective that probably one step in the future will be to try to de-escalate what is the rule of chemo in uh, the MMR population? Probably this patient may be treated with immunotherapy alone. Who are the long responders? Uh, and for this patient, immunotherapy alone is more than enough. Um, this is what I see in the future. What is the rule of radiation treatment in the, in, in the era of personalized therapy with the molecular biomarker? Uh, let's see. Uh, as Nicole said, a lot of work to do. A lot of job. I fully agree with you, Keta. Beautifully said. Uh, the future is the individualized treatment. Uh, now it's four molecular subtypes. It will be many more <laughs> in the in the future. We will further uh, gain granularity. We will further learn uh, for each of these treatment options what who are the patients that benefit most. The challenge will be the, the sequence of the drug, the sequence of the new options, how we apply them. We might, uh, we can uh, spare treatment in some patients. We will escalate treatment in other patients. It will become more personalized for the benefits of our patients. It will become more complex for us physicians, but uh, certainly this goes along with benefit for our patients. I, I think it's also a very good argument towards centralization of treatment. We will need to do all these molecular analysis. Uh, this will lead to centralization, which I think is also a benefit uh, for our patients. So I'm very optimistic the future is bright for endometrial carcinoma patients. And that concludes today's podcast. Thank you to Professor Keta Lorusso and Professor Nicole Consin for joining us today and sharing their insights on the role of predictive biomarkers in guiding the treatment of patients with endometrial cancer with our audience. Remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. For now, stay safe and stay well, and I hope to have you back again on the EMJ podcast very soon. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Bye.